You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for uh, these friends who are here today. Lord, we're grateful that in your mercies you have called us together as your people. You have set us, Lord, with purpose in this world to live for you and for our neighbor, for your glory. And Lord, you've also filled us with hope to know that whatever the machines that are moving the forces of our world, that they are not ultimately determinative, but that you are in your kingdom. And so I pray that you'll lift our eyes to the hills, even in the midst of the fray, however we might identify that fray, um, Lord, to see you as our king and our shepherd, um, the one who's the lover of our souls. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll do that kind work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, if you want a Bible, David will hand you one. You don't have to have one. Um, but if you want one, throw up a hand, because we're going to look at Ruth today, and we're going to do the whole book of Ruth in a day. Uh, and I feel very unhopeful about that. Um, let me find it. So Ruth is a book. Ruth is buried in between, in our English Bibles, it's buried between um, Judges and 1 Samuel. But So if you look at, for example, the way in which Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 begins, um, in the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So this is a fascinating canonical feature of the book of Ruth. So here you have the book linked in the first verse to the book of Judges. So you have, think of our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, then Ruth. And here you have Judges, I mean, Ruth 1.1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Uh, then when you turn to Ruth chapter 3, you just you find um, Ruth described as a chayil isha, which means a virtuous woman um, or a woman of, of valor, a woman of, of substance. And guess where we find Chayil Isha in the Bible, right? Proverbs chapter 31. Um, so Proverbs 31 talks about the virtuous woman. And the Hebrew order that we've talked about a little bit in here. So the Hebrew order of our Bibles sticks Ruth right after Proverbs 31. Um, so you have Proverbs 31, then you go to Ruth, which... And so the question is, like, so where does it belong? Does Ruth belong after Judges? Does Ruth belong after Proverbs 31? And I think the fair answer to that is yes. It's like it, 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 it's, Ruth is a fascinating book because like its namesake, Ruth and Naomi, the book has a wandering character trait to it. It, it, it can move. In other words, I think embedded within the book of Ruth itself is a, is a logic that would solicit from us a reading strategy to link it to Judges that, that bridges us into Samuel. It fits in our English Bible. It's, it's a good way to read it that way. And it also fits right after Proverbs 31. But here's the stunner about Proverbs 31. So, so what's Proverbs? You have Lemuel the king. His mother is giving him advice about you know how to find a, a, a good mate, a good wife. So it goes through this list of the virtuous woman. Um, and, uh, and then lo and behold, Ruth is described for us as the embodiment of what that virtuous woman actually looks like. Here's Ruth, and here's the problem, right? Wrong gal. 
uh, wrong pedigree. She's, she's not from our neighborhood. She's not a part of the covenant people. She's a Moabite woman. In fact, throughout the whole book of Ruth, she's described as a Moabite woman. So the fact that in the, think about this, in the, in the scriptures of Israel, the, instant, the embodiment of the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31, canonically speaking, is Ruth. And she's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite who will find her way in the New Testament, as, as you'll see, in the actual genealogy of Jesus himself. So th- th- there's these sort of interesting moments in the Bible where God very quickly throws curveballs at his people um, on what they might expect from the way in which he's going to order and shape history moving toward his ultimate kingdom purposes. There, and, and let me not bury the lead. This is what we're going to talk about today, at least somewhere at its core. The book of Ruth and the book of Esther in the writings, both of them in their own way, attest to us something of the nature of God's providence and the challenges that come along with God's providence and the hope that comes along with God's providence. And what, what do we mean by God's providence? The fact that God involves himself, and this is crucial, in the ordinary affairs of human circumstances, living, loving, dying, suffering, hoping, in the normal experiences of humanity, God involves himself in that to shape things toward his own ultimate end, um, even in the difficulty of it. And when you trace Ruth's life, for example, and Naomi's life, and we're going to see this here, it's, it's, not, it's not a narrative that any one of us would want to sign up for. And um, when you think about Esther's life, right? And we, what, what's one of the issues with the book of Esther as it, and its placement in the Bible? It was debated even among the rabbis after Jesus' time. The rabbis were debating, is the book of Esther really a book that, in, in the language of the Old Testament, of the rabbis, that makes the hands unclean? That, that's, that's their shorthand for, is it canonical or not? Is it, is it scripture or not? Does it make us ritually impure so that we have to wash our hands before we handle it? Um, and there were some rabbis that said no, some rabbis said yes. But why do you think rabbis said no? It would make some sense, actually. No Yahweh, no God. Really a rather secular book in many ways. Um, and, you know, I, 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 we're all adults in here. You know, how you teach Esther to children, it's a challenge, actually, right? I mean, so here's this Israelite woman in the land of Persia um, who uh, the, the Queen Vashti uh, ends up basically snubbing her husband in, in sort of an early demonstration of her, you know, female rights. And she says, I'm not going to come here and be a showpiece for you and your drunk buddies. Um, no. And so he dismisses Vashti as queen. And now he's got, I mean, in effect, a Persian beauty contest for his Ahasuerus, for his next wife. And Esther comes and she um, has to sort of present herself and try out for the role. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'll be delicate here, but, you know, it, they, they didn't go to Starbucks. Is I think what the point this was. There's there's a seedy side to this. It's messy. It's, it's very human. Um, but it's through the messiness of these human events that God uses instrumentally Esther and Mordecai to be the instruments by which God saves his whole people. Um, that's why I think even though God's name, this is, I think, part of the power of a book like Esther, even though God's name is not mentioned in the book or Yahweh's name mentioned, he is present in every turn of the page because he's ordering history toward his own salvific and redemptive ends. And in a, in a sense, Esther mirrors for us what our experience of providence is more often like than not. I mean, I, you think about it. From our standpoint, I, we, we want... 
We want to know what's around the corner. We want to be able to kind of control the information or at least be prepared for what's coming around the corner. And most of us know that that's just rarely how life works. Providence is more often than not understood in retrospect rather than prospect. We see in the back, we say, okay, I saw God's hand moving in this complicated situation toward this end, but in the middle of it or before it, rarely are we able to sort out all the pieces to be able to make sense of whatever the tableau is that God is, is painting or stitching before us in the, in the fabric of our lives. So that's Esther. I'm not going to talk a lot about Esther, but going back to Ruth, um, the book of Ruth is another book, again, where providence seems central to the book from beginning to end. Um, and it comes to us in storied form. Some of these are powerful here about, about stories. Um, but can we just look at some of the, some of the basic features here of, of, the, of the book of Ruth? A lot, lots to talk about here on, on what the book of Ruth actually is. But, but let's, let's look at Ruth, um, the first few verses. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So again, this is a, the power of story. We have our setting. We're beginning to get our plot. What's the setting? The judges are ruling. So this is pre-monarchy. No Saul yet. The judges were those instruments that God gave to his people to be um, judging slash redeeming figures. And they were kind of a mess, right? I mean, think about Samson, for example. Samson is both a kind of Israelite hero, um, and he's also... You know, a bit, a bit of a uh, of a bore, I think, or, or uh, you know, use a lot of terms to describe Samson. Um, interesting, by the way, I was watching this, watching this archaeological. Who, who was it? Jody Magnus. Does, does that name ring a bell for anybody? She was doing some archaeological presentation at the Kiwanis Club here in downtown Birmingham. Someone invited me to go to that. Are, are any of you into that? The Kiwanis? What's that? No, she's my neighbor actually, but it's her, she's the one that brought. A Jody in. Um, and so they discovered these, these sort of early first century, second century synagogues in Israel. And it's interesting, a lot of the iconography in these synagogues had to do with Samson. That was a bit of a surprise to her, kind of thinking about, because Samson's a complicated figure, but Samson presented to them something about the saving character of God in the face of people's, op- you know, in, in the face of opposition. So these were the judges that were judging. Famine comes in the land. So this is, of course, the motivation that pushed um, Naomi and her family out of the land. And they sojourned to the country of Moab. All right, so the, Mo- the Moabites were, um, I guess, kind of toward the southwest um, of, of Israel, um, desert area. And so they go down to the, to the Moabite land. This was the name of the man, Elimelech. And then they had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And just so you know, that's all we learn about these guys. And from the standpoint of, of literary characterization, they are as flat as it comes. They're, they are not interesting at all. You get their names and that's it. Like that, that, now Ruth and Naomi, very round characters. We're going to follow these women uh, through this history. And I'll, I'll just go and tell you, I've been thinking some about this. And, and, and we'll need to think more. So these, these aren't settled thoughts. But I do think something that Ruth herself and Naomi demonstrate something in the Bible about the embo- they embody Israel's own, their own fortunes. Think about Israel going to Egypt and then back. Or going into ex- uh, exile in Babylon and then coming back. There's something about the character and the faith of both Naomi and Ruth that are witnessing to the character of Israel being faithful before God in their own wandering status. So all, all to say, these books, like a book like Ruth, multiple layers of reading 
an, an interest level going on when you begin to associate a book like Ruth with the rest, rest of the Old Testament. So what happens with Ruth? Well, she, I mean, with Naomi. So she goes uh, to, to a place that's not her own. And then she becomes, in a blink of two verses, a, a member of the most vulnerable people in the ancient Near Eastern world. She becomes a widow and childless in a few verses. I mean, look what happens. They were, they were Ephratites, which means they were from Bethlehem. Um, they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, he died. That's really bad news. Right? For a husband to die in a patriarchal world like the ancient Near East is a bad thing. I mean, when you see about, the, you know, I'm sure may, maybe there was a lot of romantic, emotional grief as well. I'm sure that's part of it. But a lot of grief that came from the passing of a husband had to do with the fact that now my, the patron... Our, our safety is not present anymore. This is why there are actual laws in the Old Testament that would require siblings to come in to protect vulnerable wives that no longer had a husband anymore. So she's in a foreign land, no longer having a husband. Very, very vulnerable. But, good news, silver lining here. The silver lining is she's got two sons. This is why it's so important in a world that you know hands-on sort of the patriarchal norms to the, to the next generation, why having a son is so important. It's why we see Hannah in the temple weeping before the Lord like a drunk woman, um, uh, pleading for God to give her a child. We're, we're entering into what is a, a literary feature, a common thread in the Old Testament, and that is the theme of the, of the barren woman, of the widowed woman. Think about Zion in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren woman, and you who have no children. Um, speaking to Zion, because now you have more children than you can ever have known. So this theme about barrenness, think about Sarah and Rachel and Hannah and Lady Zion. Now we're going to have Naomi here. So this whole literary trope, if you will, becomes central to how the Old Testament understands at least part of its own theological vocabulary. What does it mean to be in a place that's ultimately vulnerable in need of the saving and protecting hand of God himself? So look what happens here. Uh, she has two sons, so that's okay. Her husband's gone, but she has two sons, so she should be okay. And they took Moabite wives. Now, there's no value add to this. There's no explanation of whether or not they should have done this or not. But it's a curiosity. It's the kind of thing you think, well, that's not what you would expect Israelite young men to do. It becomes a problem later, for example, in Ezra and Nehemiah on the far side of the exile where men had intermarried with foreign wives and that becomes a real dicey, tricky issue. But here they are and they took Moabite wives. And the name of one was Orpah, another flat character for the most part. And the name of the other was Ruth and they lived there for about 10 years. So 10 years, husband dies, 10 years, things are okay. And then boom, verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And that's as bad as it gets. And it's, um, think about, for example, lots of talk today about the nature of justice and what justice actually means in the public square. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, and it's one that's central to the Old Testament. The concern for justice, um, for equity in dealing with people before the law and before God's grace, it is a huge feature of the Old Testament. And, 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 and this is what I think I find so fascinating. For people who tend to think of the God of the Old Testament as a bit of a crank, you know, like the Old Testament of God, he's, he, he's ornery in the morning. Um, but then in the New Testament, he seems to be all sunshine, you know, and soap suds. That, that view, which is, I think, a very common view among a lot of Christians, 
it's remarkable to find, and I'll use this term carefully here, but the liberal character of God in the Old Testament to those who are in vulnerable positions. And what I mean by that is liberality in the terms of generosity. It's built into the very economic system itself to be caring and concerning for those who are on the margins and who are vulnerable within those margins. But here's what's so fascinating and why it's difficult sometimes to move from the ancient world to our world in terms of policy. Right? So that's where it's like, okay, we can talk about this, but now think about policy, that's a, that's a big kettle of fish to begin frying. Um, but one thing remains clear in the Old Testament. That whole concern about justice and the vulnerable does not remain an abstract category in the Bible. It's not abstract. It's very concrete. And it lets you know there are, there are groups of people that are particular to that social category of the vulnerable. And you know who they are? It's the big three. And you see it repeated regularly throughout the Pentateuch. You see it regularly throughout the Minor Prophets and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah as well. What are the three? The widow, the orphan, widow and orphans. Number two, and, number, and number three would be the alien sojourner in the land. Those that have come into the land who don't have the kind of cultural inheritance or capital, um, that those who are within the covenant boundary themselves, those, those people are, are vulnerable, and they are to be cared for within the context of, of, um, of, of Israelite culture. So all to say, the widow here, and why, why widows? Again, it's part of the nature of that culture itself. To be a widow with no son and no husband is to be ultimately vulnerable. It's not like you just go out and get a job and now thin for yourself. Um, you need someone to come in and take you under the umbrella of his wing so that you can be, I mean, think about it, so that you can subsist. This is not about, you know, building up your portfolio, you know, your 401. This is about eating and drinking today and having shelter over my head tonight so that I have somewhere to sleep. We're talking about subsistence here. Uh, so, so Naomi recognizes that her, her very life is on the line. And that's why she gets so passionate with her daughters. Her daughter-in-laws. And look, look at what she says. I'm, I'll, I'll just, can I paraphrase you? She, she looks at Ruth and, and Orpah, and, and they're weeping. Oh, I mean, it's a beautiful and powerful scene. I mean, how, how many mother-in-law and daughter-in-laws have this kind of you know, relationship where they're just weeping with one another? You can tell there's deep affection. And Naomi gets a little saucy with them. She says, go. Both of you go back to your, your father's, to your, to your own mother's home. Now, to the patriarchal oversight that you, where you can be safe, both of you go back. And she also says, and to your gods. This is interesting. Go back to your parents and to your gods. Um, I'm going to go back to where I belong, right? Um, but you need to stay here. And both Orpah and Ruth say, no, we're going with you. And then, this is where Naomi, whose name, by the way, means my delight. Naomi, my delight. And she says, listen. Why would you want to come with me? Even if I had, this is such a great line, even if I had got pregnant tonight and had sons in nine months, um, are you going to wait for 18 years or however long it would be until you can now marry my sons again? She's like, this is absurd. Um, don't attach yourself, if, um, I'll put this in the Genelette paraphrase, don't attach yourself to a sinking ship. The, the family you're linked to, this is a sinking ship. You go back to your family, you find a husband from within your own group, and be, and be safe. And what happens? Orpah says, you're right. You know, gives her a mother-in-law a kiss, and she goes back to her family. And by the way, she's not presented in the Bible negatively for doing that. She goes. I mean, it's, in some sense, it's not an unwise decision that she made. But then we have this beautiful interlocution between Ruth and Naomi. It's actually it's so stunning. 
So Ruth looks at Naomi and she says, wherever you go, that's where I'm going to go. And your people are now my people. And if you've read the Old Testament enough, and you feel the sort of language that becomes familiar with the way in which the Old Testament expresses itself, that language right there should immediately cause your ears to buzz. Your people will be my people. That's the language of the covenant that God makes with his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. So that, that, that notion of your people, my people, this is now the embracing of the covenant people of God um, established in Israel, covenanted by God's own self-giving to them in grace and in law. And she says, your people are not my people. And here's the real um, the telltale here. And your God will be my God. So where you go, I'm going to go. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. So this is now um, Ruth becoming really the paradigmatic foreigner in the land. I'm going to go into the land and I'm going to embrace the covenant character of these people and their God, namely the Lord who's revealed himself in creation and revealed himself in Sinai. This, this is the God that I'm linked to now with, with Naomi. Now, I, I don't know. I, I grew up in the Baptist world. I tease my students about this. I grew up in the Baptist world. Those verses... Um, we're often read in weddings for me. Have you, have you been in a wedding? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And, I think, and then I said, that's a kind of a strange thing to think about a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law thing now becoming a husband-wife. I mean, just, people have to sort of think through the dynamics of that. But anyway, you use it carefully, I would say. Um, but this is, this is the scene. Ruth has now attached herself in the hope of whatever Naomi's God will do in their lives. And the prospects are not promising. You're going to feel this as we go forward. It's not promising. So here we go, right? Ruth and Naomi make their way back to uh, Bethlehem. And it's really, it's a very disturbing scene. You know, Naomi comes back into the town. The people, it's been a decade. The people recognize her and they're like, is this Naomi? What does Naomi say? Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. So give me a new name. Naomi means my delight. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitterness um, in, in, uh, in Hebrew. Because the Lord has really dealt bitterful, bitterly with me. Now that's, that's worth speaking about the nature of providence too. Um, and and, I, and I don't, you know, we have to be careful pastorally how we navigate these things. Because there's a sense in which this, this is Christian steak and potatoes kind of conversation. This is the heavy stuff. It's a recognition throughout the Old Testament that God can bring both good things and hard things into our lives and be the source of both of them. I think it's really, it'd be so much easier, I think, and more naturally fitting to our religious sentiment if we could, could, could sort of sit on the notion that the good things that come into our lives, God does, and the bad things that come into our life, Satan does. I mean, that kind of dynamic. I mean, that would work really, really well. Um, except for the fact that the Bible just doesn't understand that kind of language. The Lord, I mean, think about the book of Amos. It's such a hard verse. Does a calamity fall on a city and the Lord's not involved in that? Um, Job, for example, through the whole book of Job, we've talked about this already here, never questioned the fact that God was involved in his own suffering. Um, and neither does Naomi. Na- Naomi is under no misgivings about the fact that God is involved in the challenges that have come into her life. 
and he's and he's providentially orchestrated things in such a way as to really put her in a pretty tough spot. This is maybe one of the reasons why when you turn to the book of Psalms, there are more lament psalms than any other kind. The psalmist gets it too. Where have you been? What are you doing? Why is this happening in my life? Um, certainly you're involved. Certainly you can make it better. Why won't you make it better? That, that kind of dynamic that you have of the wrestling with human existence and experience, suffering, in the face of God's action in it, is a challenge that I think Christians have to face regularly from generation to generation. And here's Naomi telling the people back in Bethlehem, listen, um, you know, the, Lord, the Lord's dealt hard, harshly with me. This, this has been difficult. And the beauty, I think, about the Naomi, who becomes not just a figure back then, um, a story, a, a character in a story, you know, back in the Bible back then, but she actually becomes a figural representation, really, of what the life of faith will ultimately be. She models this for us, recognizing the challenges that come, the suffering that comes, the loss and the deprivation, in view of the future eschatological hope the future hope that God will indeed make all things new. He's going to do it. And it might not feel it right now. But just think about it. In four simple chapters, we will see Naomi go from, the Lord has dealt so bitterly with me. Um, I, I, I left as a delightful person. I've come back barren and stripped of everything. It's, it's, the, it's the worst fate that could have befallen me. And that's on me. And I'm coming back here in poverty, hoping that someone will take care of us. So that's how the book begins. And how does the book end? This is so stunning. And I don't think people tend to forget this detail. The book ends not with Ruth holding the, the male child. You know what the last scene is? Naomi's holding that male child. And, then the, and what does Naomi say? The Lord has been kind to me. That offspring that I for sure lost, I'm holding it in my arms right now, who's the grandfather of Jesse, who's the father of King David. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable thing to see how God involves himself in the messiness and the hurt of human history to or orchestrate things toward his own ultimate redemptive end, even when we can't plot out and connect the dots of how one cause leads to one effect, to another effect, and, and uh, on to infinity, I guess. Okay, so this is what. So I'm gonna keep me honest on time. So this is what's happening here with Ruth. Um, so uh, she's come back. She's, she's come back. Let, let me stop. Any questions you want to ask before I move on? This, we're, we got uh, Bueller. Okay. Um, so what happens? Well, they go back um, to, uh, to 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 Bethlehem, to Ephrata, and um, you know it's it's Skid Row. They find shelter for themselves. And now Naomi, knowledgeable about Israelite law, says, go to the fields and glean. And this is another beautiful thing. I don't know if any of you read uh, the essays of Marilyn Robinson. They're, they're, she's, a, she's kind of hard to read these essays, frankly. But she's got an incredible essay um, on uh, the law of Moses, uh, which uh, I think she, she entitled something like the, 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 uh, the right hand of God or something like that. But it just talks again about the generosity that's built into the economic system of ancient Israel. And it's, and it's a system of generosity that also takes into account human dignity. It's really remarkable when you dig into it. Um, and what's the human dignity part? The human dignity is if you own land and you are a large sort of farmer magnate, which is what Boaz obviously is, then it's important for you to leave the corners of your field ungleaned so that those who don't have the means to provide food for themselves can come in 
and labor and work and, and then glean from your own fields so that they can eat. So that's, it's, it's, it maintains human dignity. It brings them actually into the, into the workforce and then moves them back. Into, so it's, it, there's a lot to be thought about on the economic system that happens in the Old Testament that I think is fascinating when one observes it. And Naomi is obviously knowledgeable about this system. And she sends her daughter-in-law, Ruth, out to the fields. And she says, you know, go at it. And here's providence again. Right? Here's the... Here's the mysterious hand of God at work guiding Ruth and Naomi in ways that they were not even conscious of. Because Ruth stumbles on a field, right? Um, She doesn't know who Boaz is. Boaz is going to get introduced to us later. She has no idea who Boaz is. She finds a field. She gets permission to glean there. She works very hard. Boaz comes onto the scene and he says in in a kind of foreshadowing question, who is this woman? And the answer is, well, she's a Moabite woman, the daughter, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who's just come back, and she's been working all day. And this is where it gets a little bit dicey when you read the book, and you realize the the again the vulnerability of a single woman in the ancient world. I mean, I just don't. It's hard for us to really kind of get our minds around it, but extreme vulnerability, because what does Boaz quickly say? He gives, his, he gives his workers a series of instructions. Number one, do not impede her. Let her work. And in fact, help her out and give her a little bit more. Right. So make sure that you, you, you take care of her. And then what's the second uh, warning to them? Nobody touch her. Right. Don't lay your hand on her. Um, and that word touch is, you know, there's, there's some ambiguity in the Hebrew about what he means. In other words, being a single woman, a widow woman, young woman like Ruth in a field working, in a kind of male environment, you can just imagine the dynamics that are at play there. And and he says, don't let anybody lay a hand on this young gal. Don't do that. Um, and, and by the way, this gets reinforced later. Because when Ruth comes back and has her little rap session with Naomi around the fire that night. This is so great. This is like mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. So tell me about your day. We know how to go. And Ruth says, well, you know, I, I, um, I stumbled on this field and, and the owner's name is, is Boaz. And it's like, What? Well, Boaz is actually in our familial clan. He's a kinsman redeemer. He's a goel. He's someone that actually has um, a wherewithal or, or an avenue to take care of us. Um, and then she goes on to say, and by the way, stay in his field so that you don't get hurt in another field. Isn't that interesting? So even Naomi knew sending Ruth out to these fields, this is, this is precarious. Right there's there's danger that's at play here, and uh, she gets into Boaz's field. He puts a protective arm around her, and also Naomi's aware. Listen, don't go into other fields because other fields you can you can get attacked there as well. So this God is orchestrating things for Naomi and for Ruth, um, and and so Ruth comes back the next day. She has more grain. He's been very very kind, and then chapter three. And this is where I, I mean, come on, does Ruth get better or what? Um, chapter three is where the embers of romance begin to kind of, you know, get inflamed a little bit. Um, and, and the mother-in-law and the daughter-in-law begin to hatch a plan. And this is again a beautiful thing, right? What, what are they doing? God's providence is at work, but God's providence at work in our lives does not call us as human agents to acquiescence, to a kind of passivity that says, well, 
or laissez-faire view of the future that says, well, you know, c'est la vie, you know, whatever it's going to be is going to be. There's a call to human action and responsibility. They are, they are embodying, think about this in the writings, they are embodying wisdom. How are we going to live skillfully in our very complicated situation? And they go, they go in on a gamble. This is risky business in chapter 3. What does Naomi say to Ruth? She says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, and I'll, I'll use southern colloquialisms. You're going to get gussied up, Ruth. Uh, go bathe. Um, put on your best linens. Uh, even says, put on some perfume, right? Uh, and, and go down to the field. And again, this is all... I'll, I'll just go and tell you. You know, Ruth chapter 3 ends up being a, um, a Hallmark movie, right? It's a, it's, it's a Hallmark movie. But there's po- points at the beginning of it where you think it might be an HBO miniseries. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it, it ends up being just like, oh, what a great Hallmark movie. But there are parts you're like, you know, you're, it's, you know what that, when you're watching a, with your family and the sort of sexually charged stuff begins to kind of come on the screen, like you, you begin to squirm. There, there are parts of Route 3 where you're starting to like, what, what's, what's going on here? Because it's provocative and it's meant to be suggestive. Ruth goes down to the threshing floor, and Naomi tells him after he's oh boy, how do I even say? After he's good and drunk, right? After he's had plenty of wine, and the nights come to an end, and he goes to the threshing floor and he lays down to go to sleep. When he is satisfied and drunk, uh, and a, a lot of wine, you go down and you lay at his, you uncover his feet, and you lay down at his feet. Now, again, I, we're adults in here. Um, this this is where commentaries get you know divided because the whole feet thing in the Old Testament can be euphemisms. In other words, there there can be stuff here um, that feels sexually charged. Now again, I'm going to emphasize Hallmark movie. All right, Hallmark movie. But the language before we get to that unfolding, I think, is meant to be a little titillating. It's meant to be like, well, what what do you mean uncovering the feet? Like, what's going on here? Um, so she lays down at his, feet, at his feet, she uncovers his feet, it feels a, like a kind of sexually charged situation, and, and, and Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night, and what has to be one of my favorite lines in all the Hebrew Bible, he says, uh, whoa, a woman! <laughs> yeah, he's woken up in the middle of the night, he's on the threshing floor, he's, he's not a young man, right? And he's like, what? there's a woman at my feet, and then he recognizes who she is, and she, and if you look at here in, in Ruth chapter 3, I'll read this to you. Um, at midnight, the man was startled, and he to- turned over, and behold, a woman. That's how it kind of says in Hebrew. Behold, a woman. Lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she said, I'm Ruth, your servant. And then she speaks to him. Here's the gamble. Spread your rings over your servant. Now, now we're into protective language. We're into the, the grace redemptive language. Spread your wing over your servant, because you are a kinsman redeemer. It's built into the very system itself. If you are willing, if you're willing and able, you can come and protect me and my mother-in-law and take us into your own house, if you're willing. And listen to what he says. This this is where it actually does, I think, get a bit romantic. Um, Verse 10, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And you're like, Oh my goodness. We're getting, we're getting information later in the story that we didn't know earlier, but Boaz has a lot of knowledge about Ruth. 
Um, the, the unstated narrative background is he's been asking questions. He's been sorting out who is this woman. Um, because what does he say? This last kindness is greater than your first. Well, what's his first kindness? Her first. The first kindness was that she loved her mother-in-law and that she has served her mother-in-law. He's going to say this later. Your reputation has got around very quickly. You are a virtuous woman. You've been kind to your mother-in-law. You, you, you divested yourself of all of your earthly rights for the sake of your mother-in-law to come to a land that's not your own. You are a virtuous woman. And yet, what does he say here? But the kindness that you're showing me is even greater than that. Because you could have gone after the younger men. Isn't that interesting? It seems like such a modern thing to say. But he's like, you could have gone after younger men, whether they were either rich or poor. So, I mean, you, you could have gone for someone very different. But now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are, and here's the term, you are a worthy woman, a chayil isha. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer that is near and I. So now it gets a little complicated, right? So you have this sort of, un, uh, the, the plot moves, like a great plot would. There's a, there's a, here's the denouement, but there's a little complication after the fact, right? So it's been resolved, there's hope, but there's got a little niggle here we've got to deal with. Now there is someone who's got a closer right to you by proximity. Um, and so when, when she comes home, I love it. When she comes home the next morning, and, oh, more to the story. This is why it's the Hallmark movie. The Hallmark movie is, and then Boaz, when they're done talking, says, stay here, sleep the night, leave before the sun comes up so that no one sees you. So in other words, it, it, the scene is provocative and, and unorthodox. And here you have Boaz, again, protecting her virtuous reputation. He's like, before anyone sees you, so we don't have any talk, make sure that you know, we get you out safely here. Um, and, then, and then you're like, okay, uh, it was Hallmark and not HBO, right? Um, so she goes, and she goes home, and she tells Naomi everything that happened. And it, it's just such a fun scene. You can just sense the relief that comes to Naomi and to Ruth in this moment. And then uh, Naomi makes this incredible claim. Well, don't you worry. We, Boaz is a man of action. This, this thing will get settled today, right? And it is. It's settled today. He goes, and Boaz, again, here's the wisdom in the face of God's providence. We're trusting God to move toward his ultimate ends, and he calls us to be responsible, wise, faithful agents in life as we move forward. And here you see Boaz being quite responsible and quite wise. He goes and he negotiates. I mean, this is, this is a, I mean, a respectful man. He goes to the city gates where he belongs. He's part of the elite, right? He's part of the, he's part of the elders of the city. So he goes to the place where business is dealt with. He has um, the closer kinsman redeemer come, and this is what he says to him. Oh, you know, Naomi's back in town, and, and, um, and sh you know, she's um, now a widow. And if you will, uh, you know, cast your, you know, if you'll take on her on as your kinsman redeemer, uh, then... Um, you know, you can, uh, you can have the little bit of land that she has. And, uh, and the guy says, sure, deal, I'll do that. And then, this is, you talk about, isn't this great? And then Boaz says, oh, oh, and by the way, you'll have to marry her daughter-in-law as well. And, he's, and the guy's like, for whatever, for reasons that are probably understandable, namely the complication of his own family and now rendering out his own wealth and prosperity his land to now probably possibly other offspring he was like well i didn't know that was part of the, de the deal i'm out um so he negotiates in a kind of masterful way and then he ends up marrying a ruth 
um, and they have a child, and this is what you see at the end of the book. So verse verse 13 of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord, and this is a beautiful way that the Lord speaks about pregnancy in the Bible. The Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Isn't that interesting? Uh, oh, I should say one other thing. After uh, Boaz puts his, his, basically his net of protection over Ruth, She's never described in the book again as a Moabite woman. It's interesting. All the way through, it's like, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. And then you get into chapter 4, no longer Ruth the Moabitess. She's now Ruth, the husband of Boaz, who is now going to be the great-grandmother of King David himself. And that's how the book ends. That's the symbol crash of the book of Ruth. Now, these are the generations of, 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 uh, of Perez. By the way, does that name ring a bell? Yes, right? It links back into this other story with Tamar, who was also a woman that was vulnerable, who used you know, wise means that's a little bit messy um, to procure an offspring for herself as well, whose name is Perez. And Boaz is, is Rahab. Yes, yes. And so you, Moabitess is a descendant of Lot's incestuous yes, daughters. Yes, yes, yes. So, Nobody here. Yes, that's right. No, that's right. There's no, that's right. No, no one's showing their CV, their family CV off. Right, exactly, exactly. So look, look at this. You have Perez, who fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Aminadab, and Aminadab uh, fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon. And here we go. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and then Jesse uh, fathered David. Isn't it remarkable? It's a remarkable story. Here with the, with Ruth and the way in which God, in His hard providence, I don't think there's any other way to describe the narrative of Ruth and Naomi other than a very hard providence. And in the great words of William Cooper, right behind a frowning providence, there was hiding a smiling face. And I think this is a good word for Christians, you know, to hold on to in the midst of the complexities of the world in which we live. Who knows? We don't know what the future holds. And, and I know it's a, it's a kind of, and I don't like bumper sticker Christianity either, um, but th- there is something very beautiful about the phrase, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Um, I mean, I might sound really simplistic, but that's about, like, that's it. I mean, when it comes to hope in the midst of human life, as we look forward to, the, to God's kingdom, in the future, our whole hope is built on the fact that we know who holds the future. And we leave, leave ourselves in God's gracious providential hand as He moves us toward that, toward that ultimate end. Um, there's a lot of despair in our world today. Soren Kierkegaard called despair the sickness unto death. Um, despair is the actual opposite of faith. Um, to be despairing. Um, and there's a lot of reason and cause for despair. Um, and even, even with something like acedia, which we talked about a few weeks ago, or sloth, which is despair in the face of even the good things that God gives us. Um, that, that kind of um, sort of deep existential angst that many people are feeling in this moment. Let us pray 
that God in His mercies would draw His people back to the hope that even in the midst of the complexities of our moment now, we have ultimate hope that God is working all things toward, toward the unveiling of His kingdom in time. And that's where our ultimate hopes and fulfillments are. And here's the good news, according to Paul, we're already citizens there. We're not waiting for our citizenship. We are already members of that heavenly city now. Lord Jesus, bless my friends as they go. Encourage and strengthen them, I pray in your grace. Teach us, O Lord, to hope. Hope as that flip side of the coin of faith. To believe that what you say is not a hypothetical, but it is true. It is the realest reality that we can claim. Teach us, O Lord, to believe that we pray in gospel hope. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.